Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. This is Bill Koch, your host in our downtown studios here in Providence. Uh, It's a Thursday morning. We are recording this coming off a really good stretch for our local teams. Uh, They've been active. They've been busy. They've not been shut down by COVID. uh, And for that, we are very, very thankful. Joined here in studio this morning by my co-conspirator from WPRI and Fox Providence, Maury Hirsch-Gordon. Maury, how you living? Bill, we have games to talk about. Isn't it a great thing? URI, PC, Bryant have all played. There's teams in each one of those conferences that haven't played. So I'm really thankful coming off of a great Thanksgiving. I hope your Thanksgiving was good. It was delicious. Uh, dinner was earlier than usual. Yeah. And that's because we didn't have high school football to cover in the morning, yep. which was strange. <laughs> uh, I woke up. I looked at my cell phone. It was 10.15. I had sort of a quick moment of dread, like I was missing something. And then I realized that we're not playing football this year. A little sad, uh, but a very 2020 moment. I guess you could say. For sure. Uh, and then I got some hoops that night, yeah. which which was nice. So, yeah, no, I'm still finishing up some leftovers, too. Oh, really? Uh, still? A week later, yeah. Good for you. A few sweet potatoes left. Oh, it's good. Some gravy. There's always gravy for days. You know, I always have to pour out gravy uh, at the end, but uh, no, I mean, it was a great holiday. Got to watch a lot of hoops, like you said. Uh, and there's a lot of teams in all three, three of the conferences that haven't played yet. No. They are zero and zero, and we've watched trying to think now right on the spot five Two, URI games five is seven four Providence games 11 basketball games yeah pretty good it's great pretty good now who cooked you cook no I do not cook you did not no I do oh. not cook I know her name was mentioned on the first podcast oh. and now she's going to get another shout out of there the second do one it. we're doing do it. but no my girlfriend Sierra does cook uh we were at her family's place uh yes. right outside of Hartford uh for thanksgiving which was nice real small small group yep um sort of near mohegan so i could so i got there for a game yep but um yeah she does a lot of the cooking the corn pudding uh, is her specialty really so it's really good it's a sort of a combination of a pudding slash a pie Mm -hmm. uh kind of comes out as like a cornbread but it's a little softer uh really good consistency cool uh, just cuts everything. I mean, you know, you take a big fork full of turkey, gravy, and mashed potatoes. You want to wash it down with some cornbread. You're coming off of a salad. Oh, I want to get right back into the sweets. Yeah. Really versatile piece on the dish. Sounds pretty good. Uh, my mom has done Thanksgiving forever. Uh, she is a master of the proceedings. Um, whether it's dinner, dessert, whatever it may be, uh, she has it down. Uh, you know, and it shows because I am not exactly a thin man, and and I certainly gained you know at least five pounds that day. So, we all have. So thanks, mom. Uh, you're the best. Uh, my doctors and, and my stomach don't like you very much, but <laughs> but that's okay. 
Um, yeah, and we had, as you said, a feast of college basketball uh, over the last week. We'll try and hit on a few things with URI, PC, and Bryant. Uh, Maury, we're going to start with the Rams uh, because, honestly, I, I think they've probably given us the most recent highlight to date, uh, and that was Wednesday night against Seton Hall, a 76-63 win at the Ryan Center, uh, a game that moves the needle for March, uh, a game that URI had circled on its schedule when it was made. Um, you know, having a chance to play the Pirates, who shared the Big East title last year. Uh, and you or I won this game in style, uh, finishing in the last three minutes. We hear coaches all the time talk about, you need to finish. Uh, you know, you need to complete the task. Stick to the game plan all the way through. Play a complete 40 minutes. When you outscore Seton Hall 10 nothing to end the game, and when you hold them without a field goal over their last eight shots, I'd say that's finishing at both ends. And they bookended it. They, they started really well, and they finished really well. And sure, they took a couple blows from a defending Big East champion in the middle of the game, and they held their ground and lost the lead a little bit there for a second, but they found their identity again. Super impressive at the end. Um, specifically, Seton Hall... I, I, I go back to the bench production. Yeah. Um, has been really good. And the supporting cast. Let's call it supporting cast. Around Fats Russell. He doesn't have to be 25 or 30 points a game. He'll find 15 or 17. He's going to walk into a few baskets. He's going to walk into... He's get, be, be getting to the foul line a lot. But the supporting cast of Jeremy Shepard has been really good. The Mitchell twins come to life. Antoine Walker's been good. Ishlegette. The freshman, I feel like we're going to be talking about him a lot. Yeah. Uh, another really good game against a high-caliber opponent. So the supporting cast that David Cox has assembled after you know quite an offseason has been, has been impressive, and I think they really gelled uh, against Seton Hall um, despite sort of an inconsistent 40 minutes, but they played well in those certain spots, and, and it's a big win, especially coming off of Mohegan Sun, knowing that you missed those opportunities. Um, to, to capitalize on it is, was was impressive your, your point about the the bench production is a good one uh you or i outscored seaton hall 26 to 10 off the bench uh, ishmael Leggett had 11 makai mitchell had 11 and 11 rebounds in 22 minutes um he did some things maury that you don't necessarily see a big guy at uri do typically uh, in the second half there was one move where he had the ball in the right wing it was a spin move drive and a sort of soft finger roll at the rim I think it was with the left. Uh, you know, and I, I was sitting there on my couch and thinking to myself, how many 6'10 guys has URI had who could do that? The answer is not many. No. Uh, maybe Karan Iverson, and, and he wasn't necessarily a true post big. He was more of a stretch four. Uh, Makai is comfortable getting down on the paint and, and banging. Um, you know, Rody in this game, I, I thought, aside from Sandu, uh, Sandro Mamukalashvili, who had 25 points and, and looked unstoppable at times. I, I guess the biggest impression that I took away from this is if you were going to redraft both teams, if you were going to line all those guys up on, on the opposing baselines and you were going to pick teams, Rhode Island had more guys who could play for Seton Hall than Seton Hall had guys who could play for Rhode Island. I agree. And I think that's you know major credit to David Cox and, and to his staff, uh, the way they were able to rebuild this roster in the offseason. Um, you know, player retention was, was a serious question in March when Tyrese Martin and, and Jacob Toppin decided to transfer. Uh, you know, Rody brings in eight new players, and, and it looks like through five games, and certainly through the first four at Mohegan, they were tested. They had a chance to get a lot of guys on the floor. They didn't have Jalen Carey last night against Seton Hall. He's got a right leg injury. He had tightness, uh, couldn't get loose after shoot-around. Didn't matter. Um, you know, this team had enough answers to beat a team that, that 
you know has been to, would have been to five straight NCAA tournaments had they played it last year. Uh, a team that has established itself inside the top half of the Big East. This was a really solid statement win uh, by a URI program that we both think is headed in the right direction here. No doubt. Um, I know they you know they didn't have Bryce Aiken and. He surely would have helped the Pirates last night, the grad transfer guard from Harvard. Um, but no, Rhode Island was really good. And I think what's what I'm impressed with the most so far through five games, capping it off with the win against Seton Hall right now, is, is the way that they've been able to gel. The way that David Cox and his staff have been able to find a rotation playing ten, nine, ten guys, mm. um, which I don't think is sustainable for an entire college basketball season, but... Hell, what do I know? I mean, he's making right. it. He's making it work. Right, we sit here through five games. There's a reason we're here. <laughs> That's right, and we're not there. That's right. Um, God, I mean, big names, big stars come from big schools and big conferences. And zero and two quickly could have been zero and four. Yes, you you had a really tough game that third game as we kind of move into assessing the first five. Sure, against South Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the level of Indiana and Alabama that we saw Providence play. Just a, a notch down, though, in talent, but the same level of intensity, physicality. Tough game when you're down 0-2. You're, you know, you're 0-2 on the season. You're away from home. Mm-hmm. It's a brand-new team. How are you going to get guys to, to gel? You have a great performance there. And then a San Francisco team who's a really good team. I mean, that's, I think that's the piece that, to me, strikes me the most. The way that they've had all the pieces fit with some early season adversity and pulling out wins. Yeah, you, you've shown some toughness already, and I, I think that's a great thing to see. I think that's a really advanced trait to have. Normally, good teams will show that in February and in March down the stretch when they're trying to make their push for the NCAA tournament. URI has put that on the table already. Uh, they lost their first two games in Bubbleville. They were competitive with Arizona State uh, despite being down early. Um, you know, Rallied to take the lead in the second half. Fats Russell fouls out with six minutes to go, and, and really the game's only going to go one way from there. They get outscored 12-5. to They lose 94-88. Uh, the second loss for me, though, Maury, had me asking some questions. You lose to Boston College 69-64. It's a game where you take a six-point lead midway through the second half. It looks like you're about to put them away, and then you don't. Um, and I left Mohegan Sun those two nights with two very different feelings. The, the first night... I felt pretty good about what I saw. The second night, I felt a little disappointed. I, I, I felt like, you know, that's one of those games that they should have had, didn't win it. And I was curious to see how they would respond. And, and apparently David Cox called a team meeting on Friday morning, uh, the off day at Mohegan Sun, um, you know, and sort of refocused his team, reset them, um, you know, basically said that we're going to look forward. We're not going to look back on these two games. Uh, you know, we played well on Wednesday night. Thursday was less so. Uh, but we're not going to look back. We're going to look forward. We still have two chances here against South Florida and then against San Francisco, who upset Virginia uh, on that opening week at Mohegan Sun, uh, who drilled Nevada last night by 25, uh, a San Francisco team that's going to play at or near the top of the West Coast Conference. A, a good team, a really good resume mid-major win for URI. Um, you know, I just I, I like the way that they've responded over these last three games. I think it's really important when a coaching staff can elicit that sort of response, that sort of performance out of their team. For sure. I think part of this season and not having a conventional off season is just learning your identity and finding yourself and 
what kind of a basketball team are we? Who, you know, the lineup rotations and who should be in the spots and learning each other on the floor. That's with a team coming back that has a lot of returners from the year prior, just not having a lot of preseason experience. Now you throw in all the new guys that Rhode Island has, and sure, it took them a couple games. Should they have beat Boston College? They probably should have. Um, but that's just part of the season that they're in. And sure, so you, you lose a couple Power 5 games to start, but the response has been has been really good. Um, again, just the amount of guys that they play. It's, it, it, it's unbelievable, but... It looks sustainable now to me. Um, and if you're going to have an injury or Jermaine Harris is out or Jalen Carey's out or two or three guys get COVID-19, guys have experience. And last night after the Seton Hall game, David Cox said, our bench guys feel like we can be, they can be starters. Right. And, and I think you can say that for, for like eight of the ten guys. Um, they've already switched. They've already had seven different players start. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jermaine Harris hasn't started because he's been slow out of the gate with an injury. So there's your 8 out of 10 guys who could start. So depth is great. Um, hopefully they can get another game in before Western Kentucky on the 13th. Right. Um, but they're five games in, they're 3-2, and two, and they have an opportunity. If they can beat Western Kentucky on the road, it pro- probably ends up in a quad one game, you would think. I would think so. Uh, and then it looks like the Atlantic 10 at large – a lot of teams are performing well so far. Yeah, it's been a good start for the league. I, I want to get back to the lineup. You touched on it. Uh, they made a starting lineup change before their third game. They brought in Mikel Mitchell and Malik Martin. Uh, Jalen Carey dropped to the bench. Uh, Makai Mitchell dropped to the bench. And, and I think the thinking there was we're going to be a little more defensive, a little more physical uh, coming out of the blocks. Mikhail Mitchell you know, profiles more as that rim protector. Makai is a little bit more skilled on the offensive end, can play on the wing a little bit, um, you know, wants to get out of the paint a little bit. Uh, and then obviously Malik Martin gives you a little more size compared to Jalen Carey. He, he's closer to a small forward than he is a third guard. And, and I think that worked against South Florida. I, I think they set a really good tone early in that game. Um, I think it carried over the next night against San Francisco. Those two teams went 13 for 53 from three against them combined, uh, which is a really good performance and very much in line with who they've been the last two years under David. Uh, you know, someone who plays elite defense, particularly on the perimeter. Uh, you know, you throw out the Arizona State game and their metrics would be really, really good over the last four. Um, and that's the sort of thing that you need against teams like Seton Hall who play in a power conference, who are physical, who have bigger guys, stronger guys. Uh, like I said, they took Louisville all the way to the wire in their first game on the road. Um, you know, got really close to an impressive win over an ACC foe. Uh, you know, I just I look at this URI team, Maureen, and we talked about this before we started. Just physically, they're very representative from the standpoint that they start guys with size, and they bring guys off the bench with size. And I think about URI's last NCAA team uh, when they had Stan Robinson playing the four and Andre Berry playing the five. Um, you, know, you got Cyril Angevine coming off the bench. But there weren't really those front court answers that you necessarily see the bigger teams have, the power teams have. Those are the more difficult guys to recruit. We've talked about that on the podcast before. For them to be able to have four or five guys who are legitimate Six seven, six eight, six nine can play in the paint. They're not intimidated or overmatched against guys like Iko Biagu. 
um, you know, they, they're going to be able to go in and bang with some of these elite teams that they're going to end up playing, uh, you know, whether it's at the top of the A-10 or maybe beyond into March. And, and I think that is just very reassuring, not only if you're a URI fan, but if you're the coaching staff and the players as well. You're getting off the bus and you're looking at the other guys and you're thinking, well, they kind of look like us. We, we can, can play with them. We can hang. We can hang. It's the eye test, the airport test. You see them walking through the airport. This is a team that looks, has the size of a Power 5 team. And they have the skill and the talent that have meshed well early in the season to do so. And, and now it's starting to pay off. Uh, so we're looking at Rhode Island now. As you said, uh, their next game scheduled December 13th against Western Kentucky. If 2020 has taught us anything, that's probably not the next time they're going to play. No. 11 days off. I hope not. You get the sense that with scheduling being what it is and, and games being booked 36, 48 hours in advance, uh, sometimes 24 hours in advance, uh, that Rhodey might be able to find a way to get themselves another game or two ahead of Western Kentucky. Um, looking regionally a little bit, uh, I know UConn is in the market for a game. Uh, it would be fascinating. If they were to play against Dan Hurley, their own their old uh, their old coach, I doubt that Dan would take that kind of game. It would be a little too emotional mm-hmm. for him. I, I know he said that he doesn't want to play Rhode Island in the future because it would be difficult for him. Yeah. This was a place that he loved for six years, uh, but it is a game that would make a lot of sense for both teams. Um, there's a team up the road, uh, up Route 95, that we know doesn't want to play. Uh, you know, did not want to schedule their portion of a home-and-home game. And not ready to play. Uh, and potentially not ready to play. <laughs> and, and that's where we turn to Providence, uh, you know, who is off to a 2-2 two and two start, uh, a 1-2 and two finish in the Maui Invitational. Uh, and, Maury, I, I, you know, aside from maybe the first 10 minutes against Davidson, uh, I don't know how many positives you take away if you're Providence from those three games. Uh, Wednesday night, losing to Alabama, 88-71. Uh, the Crimson Tide just went up and down the floor against Providence. They made 12 threes. They were 17 for 33 from two. Um, had five guys in double figures. And, and really, yeah, I didn't get to see a lot of that game. I was watching the Rhode Island game. But you know, just on social media and, and looking at the box score and, and just you know hearing from people who I respect and, and whose opinions I respect, Providence just wasn't really at the races for this one. They talked going in. How all summer long they talk about Maui, they want to show the country, the team they are, they can compete at the top. And Bill, they didn't even face the three best teams in the tournament. Yeah. Texas won it all. They edged North Carolina, two top 15 teams. Stanford was right there at the end. And then they got blown out by Indiana and Alabama, and they barely beat Davidson. We didn't really learn a lot. I didn't really learn a lot from this team, and I thought I was going to learn a lot from this team. Mm-hmm. But I think it comes back to one issue. There's no true point guard set, again, for a second straight season at the beginning of the year. They found out their issues. They ironed them out. They went on that run to end the season. They salvaged it last year. We get that. That season's behind you, though. Mm-hmm. Jared Bynum's a nice piece. I don't know if he has to be more vocal. I don't know what he has to do to just assert his dominance more, but he has a good floor game. He can score it a little bit if you need. He's like a quarterback that won't win you any games and he won't lose you any games. He's just kind of there. He's reliable. He's trusty. 
he's not really going to put you over the hump. So you're calling him Trent Dilfer, basically. Yeah, I'm calling him Kirk Cousins. I'm the, calling him it's the right for right now for four games into what I've seen. The, the game manager title. Yeah, he is a game manager, and and he needs a couple stars around him for his game to look even better. And I know his assist to turnover ratio is great. I believe it's fourteen to one. I'm not looking at it right now. I'm pulling it up. Uh, two turnovers so far. Eighteen to two. Right. So eighteen to two in 120 minutes. Really He's second good. on the team. Really, really good. Really good. But he's got no one to pass the ball to who can put it in the basket, which is problem number two. You can't be a good college basketball team and just rely on a big man in Nate Watson. You, you just can't. You need wings and you need guards. David Duke will run into 14 a game, I believe, by the end of the season, similar to Fats Russell. But A.J. Reeves has been a big question mark. He's shown flashes of times where he can put the ball on the ground and get to the rim, out in transition, create his own. But if he's not doing that, he's not running into four or five really good looks from deep. He's four of 20 on the season right now. And of those 20, I mean, I can think of five maybe that haven't hit the rim or hit the backboard first. Mm. Rush shots, off balance, late in the shot clock. I mean, the only three players that we know can do anything, I think, on Providence. Right now, four games into the season, is David Duke, Nate Watson, and Jared Bynum. And there's a lot of question marks after that. You know, that that's very much the, the micro view of Providence. Just I would take more of the macro view, and, and I would say that when I came into the season, I was hoping that they'd be past this. And, and I think back to the start of last year, the struggles that they had in Anaheim, the fact that they were 7-6, and six, non-conference, and I guess I sort of looked at this team and I saw the three established veterans coming back with Duke, Watson, and Reeves. Uh, and I saw other guys who were capable of slotting into what I thought were very clear roles. Um, I thought Bynum was going to quarterback this team as a point guard. Um, you're going to have either Greg Gant or Noah Horkler fill in at the four. And then Ed Cooley was going to find roles for guys off the bench, which he is excellent at doing as a head coach. Um, and I think that's that's probably one of his best skills as a head coach. And I've said that before on the podcast. What's disappointing is you go to Maui, and yes, you're playing against three good teams. Uh, you know, Indiana obviously and and uh, Alabama are, are probably going to play in the top half of their leagues in Power Five leagues. Uh, Davidson's picked in the middle of the A10, but that's a difficult team to prep for. In a short amount of time, they run a very different offense. Um, you know, they they play unlike many teams that Providence will see. This year, you would have been much better off playing Davidson first. Sure. If you had a couple extra days to get ready for them. Um, but I guess I thought that Providence would be more settled and more sorted out and maybe a little more advanced in terms of their performance, the quality of their play. And I don't necessarily think we've seen that yet. Um, going to Jared Bynum, the, the two games that they've played against Power Five teams, he had one assist against Indiana. And he had no points against Alabama. You know, eventually I think he's going to find his flow, be good, be the quarterback this team needs. Not through four games. Not quite yet. Not against the opponents that they want to play against in March. Um, you know, David Duke, I, I thought was really impressive in the postgame uh, after Alabama. When he put the loss on himself, um, you know, said, I need to do better. I need to inspire my guys more. I'm the leader on this team. I need to play like it. Uh, He had 19 points, four rebounds, six assists, and a steal in 38 minutes. 
he couldn't have done much more. No, he couldn't have. But that's what leaders do. They take responsibility. If you're in that guy's hands, you're going to end up in a good place. It's just a matter of when. Um, you know, I also look at, at Nate Watson, who I think has been spectacular so far. Uh, I think this is the guy you would have seen last year if he was healthy yep. throughout. He started the year with a knee injury. He admitted he was out of shape. He missed the first four games. Um, right now, he, he looks like one of the best big guys in the Big East. Uh, you know, he's scoring at will. He's confident. That mid-range jumper is automatic. Yep. Even if it's off the glass. You know, he, he's going to be a real big problem for teams going forward. Uh, you know, but those two guys need more help, and, and they're not necessarily getting it. You mentioned Reeves struggling to shoot from three. That's a team-wide problem. So far through four games, uh, you didn't really get much off the bench uh, at any point in, in those three games. Noah Horkler played well against Davidson. Uh, he played reasonably well against Indiana. Also had 26 rebounds through their first three games. Um, you know, but aside from that, you're, you're just not getting key contributions. You're not necessarily seeing depth. Uh, you're not necessarily seeing cohesiveness from Providence. And, and you know, that's being exposed by playing against teams who are pretty good. That's why you go to Maui, to get tested, to have those NCAA resume games. Um, it is a difficult field to play in. Uh, you're looking at Davidson, who lost by two to Texas, who ends up winning the tournament. So that's how thin the margins are there. And you are going to get exposed quickly if you don't have your house in order. And right now, Providence is, is not quite there yet. So URI could start eight of their ten guys on their team. And with Providence, you only have three guys that are set in their starting lineup. You could start anybody else, but you don't feel confident. So it's the same issue, but it's but it's backwards. It's who who do you turn to? Who who can help turn this thing around? You need you need scoring out of Greg Gant. He's you know doesn't have the best form, doesn't have the best shot. If he's open, he's got to shoot. He's made a few of them. I like his game a little bit um, in the right spots. Do you have to put Horkler in for Gant? You know, to in the starting five, we mentioned that as a possible change. Um, I think Horkler can shoot it a little bit better than he has. But if he goes in the starting lineup, you just have no, you don't have any good reinforcements off the bench. Um, Alan Breed showed showed some signs against Alabama, hit hit a few shots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think can continue to do that as long as you know. Obviously, the scouting reports uh, will be focused on Watson and Duke. He can have some spots, but you don't know about Bryson Goodine, Chris Monroe. If he's open, he can catch and shoot it. I don't think he can create much off the bounce uh, that he's shown. Uh, and neither can really Jimmy Nichols coming off of a year where he didn't play. So, And Ed Croswell's offensive skill set is limited as of right now. Great defensive rebounder. Um, can finish putbacks. Uh, not great at the line. Two for 12 from the year. So I think it's really hard. I think you know it's got to start with the, with the, the best players. And, and it's got to be David Duke. You know. I know we said he scored 19 points and had and had whatever it was six assists and four rebounds and a couple steals against Alabama, but he's got to be even better if he doesn't have the help behind him. Um, now the good thing is he was on the team last year, had a really big role, understood that you know not to panic this time of year. They're two and two. It's okay. They have the Big East 
you know, schedule to rely on. There's going to be plenty of quad one games and quad two games in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Ed Cooley referenced before the out of conference, saying, he's, hey, we just have to get to 13 games. We're going to rely on our league. Our league's good enough to get us to the tournament. And we get that. And he's right. But this can't now be two and then potentially three years in a row down the line. This can't be a theme. They had a lot of success in the out-of-conference PC the last few years because of really good point guards to go back to. I, I think that's the biggest issue. The Vincent Councils, the Bryce Cottons, the Kyron Cartwrights, the Chris Dunns. That's four or five years where I think against Power 5 teams, if I'm not mistaken, PC was 6-4 and four in out-of-conference games the last four or five years. Right now, the last couple years, they haven't been great, and... I don't know where it's going to start, but it's got to it's got to turn quickly because there's not many cupcake games to play this year in the out of conference. You're going to get Fairleigh Dickinson, maybe you get one more, but between Fairleigh Dickinson, Fairfield, and one more, you're not really going to find much offensive flow. You have a TCU team, and then Big East. And Ed Cooley said it last night himself. He said we're we're not playing right now to be a factor in the Big East. So there's there's a, there's a lot of issues. Luckily, there's guys that are on the team that experienced last year that know uh, it's not the end of the world right now. Um, but with a shortened season, you don't know how many games you're going to get in. You have to take advantage. You just need a third guy to, to sort of step up and be consistent. You know, whether that ends up being Bynum, uh, you would ho- you would hope that it's Reeves in his third year, uh, someone who has shown ability, but you know, not necessarily has been consistent. I, I know he's had injury troubles in the past uh, and hasn't necessarily had a chance to play a full season uh, at full health, and and so maybe that's working against him. At this point, um, you know, but Providence, you're definitely searching a little bit here. Um, you know, I still believe in them. I, I think I think there is significant upside there. I think so long as you have Duke and Watson up front, you're, you're going to have a chance to be a good team. And you're going to have a chance to find everybody else uh, a role on this team. You're going to be able to sort of snap them into the lineup where they belong. And, and they're going to start to perform as expected. Um, you know, but this... This was a tough challenge for them. Uh, it was one that they didn't come through all that well. Um, you know, as we mentioned, you start off with a 79-58 loss to Indiana, a game where Race Thompson has a, a career high in points and rebounds. He he really hurt you. Davidson, you started off great. You're up 19 early. Uh, you need to play it all the way down to the wire to win 63-62. Hun Jung Lee misses a layup with three seconds left. You miss a couple key free throws down the stretch, a couple one-and-ones that don't fall, uh, and you're stuck there sort of biting your nails. And then obviously Alabama losing. You, you play again Saturday against Fairleigh Dickinson. That's a game that you should win comfortably, uh, a game where you can get some confidence and get back on track. Uh, and then you go to TCU next week as part of the Big East Big 12 Challenge. That won't be easy. Uh, you know, TCU coached by an alum, Jamie Dixon, uh, who obviously has them playing better uh, than they've played, you know, four or five years ago. Uh, a team that figures to be in the middle of the pack in the Big 12, uh, you know, somewhere along those lines. Um, so not necessarily, uh, not necessarily too many chances for Providence to take a breather. Not many opportunities here to, to sort of get out there and work these things out on the floor. Uh, that's the nature of 2020 with limited scheduling. They start Big East play or, or are scheduled to uh, on December 12th. So you're running out of dates as well to add games. You're playing on the 5th, the 9th, and the 12th. It doesn't really leave you a lot of time. If you wanted to add a game you know, on the 7th, 
Um, you know, maybe add a game after Christmas uh, to try and get your footing a little bit. But there's not really a ton of opportunities for them to do that. Um, with that, we will turn to Bryant, uh, who's also... Can I add one more thing? No, on please, PC? go ahead. Is that cool? Please. So, yeah. so, so if the guard spot is the way that they can turn things around on offense, on defense, it has to be their bread and butter. They have to play games in the 50s, the 60s, low 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think defense is going to be the first thing Ed Cooley addresses this week. If collectively as a unit they can defend better, it will take a lot of stress and strain off of the offense because the games won't be in the high in the mid to high 70s and in the 80s. That's where they ran into trouble last year. That's where they've run into trouble this year. That's that's the theme. If they can play games in the 60s, then they have a much better chance. Minus 27 on the glass this year with the way that the lineup that that PC runs out there, the way that Nate Watson can rebound the basketball the way that Ed Croswell can and has showed in his previous stop at LaSalle how he can rebound the basketball that's where it's got to start less second chance opportunities play games in the 50s 60s and 70s and PC will be just fine yeah 1.19 points per possession against Indiana 1.29 points per possession against Alabama that's really not good uh you know Providence typically last year I think they were 0.92 and change uh you know they were top 30-ish top 40-ish type team uh you know so obviously a huge departure from that uh and and that's you know certainly the easiest way to limit your opponents limit your chances of getting beat is at that end if if you're struggling to score you are correct limit the other guy from scoring try and win to nothing uh the, the old the old fable about basketball coaches is they are so risk averse that they would gladly try to win to nothing instead of 198. That's why they always talk about defense first, defense travels, uh, defense is our staple, all that good stuff. Uh, a team that plays no defense at all, or some, uh, and, and doesn't really allow their opponents to play any is Bryant. Uh, you know, who, if, if you have like an eight-year-old kid and, and you want them to enjoy basketball and think it's fun and, and maybe get out in the driveway and play, you probably want them to watch Bryant. Oh, yeah. Because it's up and down. It's a total track meet. Uh, this looks like... A team that Jared Grasso would have coached at Iona uh, when he was there as the associate head coach under Tim Kluse. Uh He sort of hinted before the start of this season that he felt like he had the pieces in place to play at a faster tempo, to not hold the ball like he did in his first year in Smithfield. And it's shown through two games, uh, a loss at Syracuse by a point, and then Tuesday a win at New Hampshire 93-85. Uh, Bryant is currently sixth in the nation in adjusted tempo, 77 possessions per game. They are third in the nation in terms of average possession length on offense, less than 13 seconds per possession on offense at this point. Uh, you know, the other night against UNH, 23 points from Michael Green, 22 from Peter Kiss, who had a nice breakout shooting, uh, five in double figures, and, and a team that. You know, even playing without uh, even playing without Melo Eggleston, who who has a right ankle or right Achilles injury, this team's got plenty of firepower, and and they're going to beat a lot of teams who are like them, and maybe a few teams who are quote unquote better than them. They showed it in the first game of the year against Syracuse. Um, they can hit the three. They play fast. They can defend. I mean, Hall Elijah's on the – they have yeah, seven blocks against Syracuse. I mean, this is a team uh, that can jump through the roof in all five spots uh, with their starters, maybe outside of Michael Green the third. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they have, they have two established leaders in returners and sophomores, Green and Pride. 
and Elijah's, and then you, you mix in a lot of talent. Um, Chris Childs has been a pleasant surprise. We know he could shoot the ball, but he's he's done it early and often in the first two games. Uh, like you mentioned, Peter Kiss with a breakout performance with 22 against UNH. Um, I think the ceiling does drop a little bit if Eggleston is hurt and or can't play this year, but um, you know we'll still have to see. There's still plenty of season left, and I uh, hope he can get back out on the court for our sake so we can uh, watch him play. But uh, no, I think this is, this is exactly the team that at least I expected uh, Bryant to be. Up and down, score really fast. I think Michael Green put out a tweet the other night. He came up. Uh, in, in the UNH game drove down the court and shot and made a three in like four seconds I think he, his tweet was four seconds that's how they, they want to get up and down the court um, and they show that they play to their identity they have an identity Jared Grasso has has uh, ingrained an identity in his team um, and then they have a couple solid pieces off the bench so this is a team that's going to be atop the NEC we were talking about it a little bit off air but uh, if you're not too familiar with the NEC and we don't expect you to know um, all the X's and the O's of the NEC, that's, well, that's why we're that's here. That's why we're here. That's exactly. Right. That's why we're here. Um, Xavier Malone Key, a, a key player who averaged about 12 points a game for Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, is transferring. Why? We don't know, but uh, that should open the door even more um, to a top four spot in the NEC. And I wouldn't think Bryant is the odds-on favorite as of right now, but they're definitely – they take definitely take a step closer with him out can you imagine being a college basketball coach in the first week of december not august not july not june the first week of december one of your key players comes to you and says sorry coach i'm going to transfer how about the player you've waited since march i mean (laughs) it's just you know what what i what i sincerely hope is that there's not anything serious going on behind the scenes i agree it's prompting this yes um you know i i say that of course you know above all else we we hope that uh, Xavier family, is okay. No doubt. You know, that everything's okay with his family. Um, you know, but just from an outsider's view, to, to have that sort of decision come down, when coaches talk about player movement and how difficult it is to, to run a program, I mean, there's, there's exhibit A. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just incredible to think about. Uh, and Fairleigh Dickinson's supposed to be a good team, a preseason favorite in the NEC uh, ahead of Long Island and, and now you got to look at Bryant through two games and, and you have to think that they are going to play into one of those top four spots as projected uh, you know I, I, I know preseason in the coaches poll they were tied third with Mount St. Mary's uh, I think they were third or fourth in the blue ribbon preview uh, and it looks like they can expect to be there because as you mentioned Maury they, they've got options um, you know whether it's in the starting lineup or off the bench, there is talent there. There are answers there in terms of being able to score the ball uh, and in terms of being able to play in the style that Jared Grasso wants, which is up and down and, and fast and forcing opponents into mistakes uh, and taking advantage of those on his own. Uh, we wish Jared well. He missed the Tuesday game at New Hampshire. He's dealing with some back issues. Uh, I texted back and forth with him a little bit during the game. He, he's hopeful to come back as soon as possible um you know but i know just from being around him a little bit for that guy not to coach he's obviously hurting um you know for him not to make that trip uh obviously hurting and and so congratulations to phil martelli jr yep on his first win on the sidelines um the top assistant at bryant under jared uh you know obviously the son of of the saint joe's legend uh maury you saw a lot of his best handiwork as, as a philadelphia native and grew up on those Jameer Nelson and, and Delonte West teams. Yep. 
He uh, was, uh, I think Phil Martelli Jr. was a player on that. I think he was on the bench for that. I think he was graduated in 03, I believe. And, yeah, it was a part of that great, some of those great teams. But, yeah, I mean, awesome for him. I mean, he's been at it. I think he was the youngest Division One coach at 22 years old in 2003 when he graduated and he's been at this thing 17 years and he gets to pick up win number one so uh he's been around uh veteran guy uh jared grosso tweeted it out afterwards you know he's got the utmost faith in in martelli's ability and trust him with his program and he has the experience and he and he proved it his team proved it uh down a player down a coach and they uh, pick up a nice win at UNH, who's a little bit of a program on the rise. My, my only thing with Brian is I hope they can get some more games in. Right now, their next game is Tuesday, December 8th, when they start NEC play against St. Francis Brooklyn. So hopefully they can get another game or two in. Um, I'm sure they're working the phones to, to get a game. Like Jared said after the Syracuse game, hopefully they haven't played too well to scare off some teams that they normally could schedule. There are there are some reports out there that they will play UMass uh, a little later in December. They have rescheduled the Stony Brook game, uh, which was supposed to be played on opening night. Uh, there was a positive test, not with Stony Brook, but but with another member of the game staff. Um, you know, so that game w- was postponed. They've reset a date for that in mid December. Um, there was some talk that they were going to try and get into Bubbleville potentially for one game at Mohegan Sun, uh, possibly on Friday. We'll see what happens there. Um, but I do want to go back to their season opener at Syracuse, where they made two very different sets of headlines in this game. Uh, first with their performance on the floor, and, and then with some comments from Grasso after the game uh, that were pretty revealing in terms of how difficult it is to schedule at this point in 2020-21. Um, you know, first, on the court, an 85-84 loss to the Orange, uh, a game that Bryant had two shots to win it at the end. Kiss missed a three-pointer, and then Green left the baseline jumper short on the front rim. Uh, Bryant led by 13 early in the second half. Uh, you know, was really taking it to Syracuse through the first 30 minutes of this game. Um, and I almost feel like they got to the point where you look at the scoreboard and you have that brief half second of, hey, we're actually winning. Oh, my God. And there's only eight minutes to go. Like, we can actually win this. And you see yourself... Going to the locker room and celebrating a win over Syracuse, and then all of a sudden the Orange make a run. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's what Bryant did, but as a, as a fan, as a media member, I sort of look from the outside and I think, this might actually happen. You know, I had reached that point. Uh, it's human nature for the players to potentially have reached that point. Uh, Syracuse, in the last eight minutes showed up and they were Syracuse. Uh, Joe Girard had a terrible night from the field, but he did manage to make a couple big three-pointers down the stretch. Uh, Buddy Beheim shot it pretty well. Uh, Merrick Dolezal, I thought, really hurt Bryant. Uh, he was the sort of matchup at the, at the four that they couldn't necessarily deal with uh, and shouldn't, shouldn't be capable of dealing with, quite frankly. They're an NEC team playing an ACC team in a guarantee game. That's a game that Syracuse should win 100 times out of 100, and Bryant put an almighty scare into them. Bryant deserved to win the game. They outplayed Syracuse for most of the game. Uh, They led right up until the end. They deserved to win. Um, And unfortunately, just a few shots, you know, didn't go down. But uh, they were there. I mean, they hung with Syracuse on the glass. They mixed up looks defensively. Right from the gate, they weren't scared. They come out shooting hot from the floor uh, and from deep. 
It's going to be a fun team to watch. I just hope that they can continue to get a couple more opportunities, like I mentioned in the out-of-conference, because I think this team, um, if in a normal season, would have a really good out-of-conference slate, would win four to five games, maybe be about 500 uh, in the out-of-conference, depending on the type of schedule they play. And if they were to fall short, would be good enough for a postseason uh, bid, which is really tough to do in the NEC. No question. Really tough because if you don't win your league, if you don't win the league in the NEC and go to the NCAA tournament, most of those teams uh, don't play in the CBI or the CIT or even the NIT, uh, other than the runner-up. So, uh, I think I think the the future is bright for Bryant, and uh, hopefully they can get another game so that they can continue to. Uh, continue to play and continue to ride this momentum that they clearly have the first two games of the year. Now, as we said, uh, after the game, there, there was an obvious reaction from Jared Grasso. There, there was a question posed to him by Ian Steele from ABC6, which I thought was really tactfully done. I, I thought it was asked in a way that, that got a good answer from Jared. Um, Jim Beheim at halftime on the Syracuse radio broadcast was asked about playing Bryant in the game. Uh, Syracuse was coming off a COVID-19 pause. They hadn't necessarily practiced uh, that much, if at all. Um, you know, and, and were obviously caught cold early by the Bulldogs. Uh, and Jim Beheim came out and, and said at halftime they should have canceled the game. Uh, said that to his own radio team, that he should have canceled the game. Um, when asked his reaction to that uh jared grasso you know had some comments regarding Bayheim, regarding scheduling um Bayheim offered a, a bit of a mea culpa after the game um took blame on his own shoulders said it was it was his mistake for playing the game uh, that wasn't something that he was able to say at the half when he says they should have canceled the game he should have canceled the game uh, there's no one more powerful at Syracuse than Jim Beheim. Nope. Not the athletic director, not the school president, not anyone else. It's his decision to play. As an ACC coach and who he is, I'm sure he thought, even if we haven't practiced, Bryant's going to show up. We'll beat them anyway. It doesn't really matter. It's an NEC team. We're just cutting him a check. It's not going to be a big deal. He was wrong. He was wrong. He almost got exposed. He almost got embarrassed. Um, but for him to say they should have canceled the game, in this current environment where teams are ducking out of games and canceling games and trying to find better games and, and not honoring contracts, that sort of set Jared Grasso off a little bit. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read his comments in their entirety, just in the interest of fairness. Uh, he said, am I supposed to give an honest reaction? Let me give an honest reaction. We gave them five opportunities to cancel the game. They wanted to play it. We asked to move the date five times. We felt the same way. They were coming off quarantine. They asked to play it. They wanted to play us. We should have beat them at their place. If that's going to be their excuse, so be it. And now I got angry because we had this conversation with them a dozen times about moving the date back. They decided not to move it. I know I'm not supposed to say that. He's a Hall of Fame coach. I'm a nobody. But the reality is we tried to change the date and give them the opportunity to change the date. They decided not to. They decided to play. Is that the reason we should have beat them? If they want to use that as an excuse, they can. But we came up here and we should have beat Syracuse at Syracuse. It's hard for me not to be blunt. I apologize. I would have wanted to cancel the game if I was in their shoes. They didn't want to cancel the game. They made that decision. We came up here to play and came up here to win, and we deserve to win. We didn't make enough plays to. 
They're a very good team. He's a Hall of Fame coach. I have nothing but respect for him. But for them to say they wanted to cancel the game is just completely false. Maury, your reaction. (laughs) I have two reactions. Uh, Being a lifelong Syracuse fan, as I mentioned on the first podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Beheim is the next closest thing to God for me. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I I completely... I applaud Jared Grasso for telling us his honest answer. Uh, what, what, you know, I mean, we're taking him for his word. We, you know, I haven't, we haven't fact-checked it, but yes, uh, I'm taking him for his word that he did everything in his power to allow Syracuse to move the game. And when they said, we're going to come play it, they pre- Bryant and Jared Grasso prepared to go win the game, and they had a chance to win. Um, from the Syracuse perspective, you read between the lines and what Beheim said, it's, uh, oh, crap, Bryant's a really good low major, mid major team. We're in trouble. Our team's not ready. That's what it is. Um, should he have said it, Beheim? No, probably not. It's a slap on the wrist. It's no big deal. It's blown over. We're a week past it now, but you, you feel for Bryant, you know? Um, you feel for Bryant in terms of. Syracuse just not, you know, understanding that Bryant outplayed them uh, and that that Syracuse wasn't ready, that Syracuse didn't take Bryant, you know, um, serious enough. So um, I think that's where I'm at right now. Uh, The situation's over, but uh, I I do applaud Jared Grasso for his honesty um, because we don't really get that type of insight. Right. Um, he easily could have said, I'm not commenting. We would have never known. Uh, but it was good to kind of peek behind the curtain in a year that there's so much stuff has gone on behind the scenes. And there's a ton of stuff that always goes on behind the scenes in college hoops and sports in general. But it was nice to at least hear, hear this. Um, and I think that's where we're at. We, we've alluded to some of these things on the podcast, whether it be through recruiting, through player management, through scheduling. Uh, a lot of things that we hear off the record from coaches. Um, you know, They'll talk about how difficult those three aspects of their job can be. Um, you know, and scheduling in this year, scheduling in normal times is hard. Brutal. Uh, and, and it's really hard for a place like Bryant, who is trying to be good, um, who is trying to be bought by Power 5 teams, by Big East teams, at least two or three times a year. Uh, they're trying to fund their program through those games. You know, Normally you're talking eighty, ninety, dollars $100,000 to go play Syracuse. That's real money for Bryant. Uh, it, it's not as real for a place like Providence, let's say. Um, you know, Providence doesn't need to call USC and say, hey, will you pay us hundred grand to come to Los Angeles and play a game? You know, Providence can outspend Bryant 7, 8, 9, 10 to 1, potentially in terms of their basketball budget. Bryant needs that money to pay its assistant coaches and to pay for a bus to go to St. Francis, Brooklyn. Um, you know, and to pay so Jared can go to the Peach Jam and, and try to recruit a couple players. They need that money through those three or four games. And so you're, you're in a difficult time in a pandemic where those guarantees have gone from 80, 90, 100,000 to 10 or 15,000, let's say. And you've had power teams, whether they be in the Power Five, in the Big East, in the A-10, in the Mountain West, 
scrambling for games to try to build their own NCAA resumes. And so they're going to dump teams like Bryant on their schedule in Central Connecticut, um, you know, in Lehigh and, and Lafayette. They're just not going to play those games this year. They're going to try and play each other and then go into conference and give themselves as many chances as they can to help themselves out on Selection Sunday. That leaves Brian on the outside looking in. The, the teams in the low majors and the mid-majors, they're not the cool kids at the high school dance. They're stuck sitting on the wall, and the Power Five teams are going to go out, and the Big East teams are going to go out, and they're tr- going to try and keep the monopoly on those 68 spots. And they're going to do everything they can. And, and so Jared alluding to that, I'm sure there were conversations that Bryant has had with Syracuse and with any number of Power Five and Big East teams and teams that are capable of cutting them a check to come play a game. Um, and I'm sure that Syracuse probably wasn't their only option in, in terms of going somewhere. But they might be their only option now because when you put an effort like that on tape and you have Power Five and Big East and, and A-10 um, you know, maybe American Conference coaches watching that and you're maybe a coach who's on the brink of losing his job or needs an NCAA tournament or needs 20 wins to keep his job, you're not scheduling Bryant now. Nope. You can't afford to lose that game that's a fireable loss. Not for someone like Jim Beheim. No. You know, but maybe for the next coach at Penn State, who's replacing Pat Chambers. Uh, you know, maybe for the next coach at Temple. You know, Aaron McKee is a program legend. He's not going anywhere. But if he wasn't Aaron McKee, and he was in his third or fourth year, uh, and he hadn't made a postseason in the first three years, and he cuts a check to Bryant and loses a game, the athletic director says, well, what's going on here? You know, why, why is this person my coach? You can't you even know, look at it in a vacuum with Syracuse. It's now happened three straight years. And this, is just, this was just the best performance. I mean, you had two years ago, they took Iowa to overtime right. in Iowa City. Yeah. Uh, you're right there with Rutgers. You're right there with Rutgers game. last year. You had it's similar to Syracuse. You had a game-winning shot roll off the rim. Adam Grant from the corner uh, beat Fordham on the road, and uh, who else was last year? Maryland. You're competitive think, uh, with Maryland. Very competitive for the first 30 minutes of the game, and then right. the bodies take over. But right. this is three straight years that Brian has played really well on the road against the Power Five team. And, and it's going to get it's only going to get harder. And and so you're looking at them just trying to get on the floor, just trying to give kids opportunity. Um and you're in all sorts of discussions all day on the phone with head coaches you know, assistant coaches you know, uh television networks, uh you know, organizers like the Gazelle Group uh who oversaw a lot of Bubbleville, um you know, presides over a lot of those matchups in partnership with ESPN. You're trying to get your kids exposed, get them on TV, get their parents to be able to see them. Um and trying to get them better for what you know is a, a, a tough schedule in a one-bid league, uh, a league that offers no margin for error. And, and so I think what you saw from Jared was a very real, raw, honest reaction. There was some frustration there, not only from losing the game against Syracuse, a game that they had won for about 35 minutes, um, you know, but of their place in the college basketball world and the realities of being a place like Bryant in the NEC, uh, you know, where you're sort of one of the forgotten few. Um, you're not one of the cool kids at the dance. You're, you're fighting for every inch of real estate that you can get <laughs> in the sport. Um, you know, and that, that's the type of coach and, and that's the type of advocacy that you need to move the needle a little bit, and he certainly did. And so I, I think with that, 
we've vented most of our outrage here, uh, and I think we've set the table a little bit going forward. Uh, in the next few days for Providence, URI, and for Bryant, uh, we would like to say that we know when they're going to play again, but we don't take that for granted. Uh, it's not guaranteed. Uh, you got Providence coming up this weekend. You could have a game for Bryant at some point. You could have a game for URI at some point. We're not necessarily sure, um, you know, but we will be back soon. We will be watching. We hope you do the same. Uh, Maury, thank you very much. You got it, Bill. Thanks for having me on.